The time right now is 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, December 11th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... A new proposal would have state officials designate specific areas where unhoused Wisconsinites can set up camp and impose a fine if folks don't comply. Just months before the 2024 election, Wisconsin is seeing public debate about a few controversial proposals looking to overhaul the election process. A research analyst discusses the Reagan-era federal low-income housing tax credit. And in the second half, the government's calendar gets a closer look. UNICEF hits a milestone. Madison celebrates Tuba Christmas 2023. And two new war movies are available for viewing. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican operative and lawyer Kenneth Chesbrough is now cooperating with investigators with the state of Wisconsin Department of Justice, according to a report from CNN. Chesbrough was involved in the attempts to overthrow the 2020 presidential election, including in the state of Wisconsin, where 10 Republicans posed as fake electors for former President Donald Trump. Last Wednesday, those electors settled a civil lawsuit against them, releasing a statement acknowledging their actions but not admitting any wrongdoing, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It is unclear whether the Wisconsin Department of Justice is going to bring criminal charges against the fake electors, but Chesbrough's cooperation indicates that the investigation is still open. Wisconsin State Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew, a Republican from Sheboygan, said in a statement today that he will not rescind the appointment of Bob Spindle to the state's election commission. Spindle is one of the 10 Republican operatives who admitted to posing as fake electors during the 2020 presidential election and has faced calls for his removal since his participation in the scheme. Spindle also stirred up controversy in 2022 when he praised Republican efforts to suppress turnout from Black and Hispanic voters. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Secretary of State Sarah Godlewski joined in calling for Spindle's removal from office, saying he, quote, doesn't have the moral compass or ability to follow the law and he needs to be removed, unquote. LeMayhew stood by Spindle, saying that the fake elector scheme was merely a legal strategy, not an attempt to overturn an election. Speaking today on Conservative Talk Radio, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said that when it comes to reaching a deal with the Universities of Wisconsin system, he is finished negotiating. That's after the UW Board of Regents on Saturday narrowly rejected a finalized deal negotiated between Voss and System President Jay Rothman. That deal would have finally released a planned pay raise for UW employees, which has been held up for months and it would have paid for construction of UW-Madison's top budget priority, a new engineering building. But the deal would have also required significant changes to UW system jobs related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it would have required changes to admissions policies, guaranteeing admission to UW system schools to the top 10% of graduates in each high school in the state. It would have guaranteed admission to UW-Madison to the top 5% of high school grads. Notably, the deal also required the creation of a professor of conservative thought position at UW-Madison. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports today that System President Rothman floated the idea of his resignation if the Board of Regents didn't sign off on the deal. 
According to one regent present, Rothman's exit from the hastily called meeting on Saturday was, quote, disrespectful and abrupt, unquote, also reports the journal Sentinel. The UW Board of Regents are slated to meet again in closed session tomorrow at 11 a.m. And in related news, UW Chancellor Jennifer Manukin again canceled a one-on-one interview planned for today with journalists at one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, citing, quote, a hectic few days, unquote. It's the second time in two weeks the chancellor has canceled on the media roundtable, which leadership of the newspaper say is the only time during the year student media receives an exclusive with the chancellor. Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin announced last Wednesday that Wisconsin will receive $2.5 million in federal funding to study the expansion of passenger rail here in the state. The new studies will examine five routes, including prospective routes connecting Milwaukee to Madison and Green Bay to Milwaukee, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. While these studies are entirely funded through federal money, if the projects are to move forward, the expectation is that the state would have to put forward some of its own money. So far, that effort has met with resistance from the Republican-controlled legislature. Last year, Assembly Leader Robin Voss said that he would not support any efforts to connect Madison to Milwaukee by rail. In a statement last week, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway said she hoped the feasibility study would help the city move forward with a passenger rail connection. Two Wisconsin hiking trails, the Ice Age Trail and the North Country Trail, have been recognized by the National Park Service as official units, reports the Capital Times. The two trails had previously been partially administrated by the MPS, but did not appear in the official guidebooks. Moving forward, the trails will have access to new funding streams as well as increased recognition. They join Apostle Islands Lakeshore and St. Croix Riverway as National Park units in Wisconsin. In a letter earlier this month, the Lacta Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians tribal president said that the tribe will not issue permits allowing access to roads on their tribal land until the town of Lacta Flambeau pays the tribe $9.6 million. It is the latest move in the confrontation between the tribe and local government after the tribe barricaded roads through their land earlier this year as a response to non-payment of fees since 2010. The town is also being sued by the federal government for knowingly trespassing on tribal lands, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Residents expressed concerns that the breakdown in negotiations could lead to the return of barricades, which would impede their ability to leave their homes and go to their jobs. The Madison Civics Club, a 111-year-old nonprofit, announced that it will be dissolving due to declining membership and loss of volunteers. The organization specialized in bringing speakers to the Madison area, including visits from Eleanor Roosevelt and Bob Woodward, reports the Capital Times. The remaining funds in the organization's accounts will be distributed to other organizations that support civic engagement in Madison. And if you're a Madison commuter, you might have struggled to make it through traffic on Regent Street for much of today. A break in a water main near Camp Randall Stadium brought much of the through fare down to a single lane of traffic earlier this morning and into the afternoon. Now, while the water service itself has been restored by noon, repaving the road took several more hours into the afternoon. And now, on to today's top stories. A new proposal would designate specific areas where unhoused people can camp, and impose a $500 fine if they set up in an unauthorized location. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the details. State Republicans introduced the bill last month. A similar bill failed to advance in the last legislative session. 
If passed, the state's Department of Administration would be tasked with designating specific public areas where unhoused people are allowed to reside. The department would assign temporary residences within those areas and be responsible for maintaining the camps. Michael Basford is the director for the state of Wisconsin's Interagency Council on Homelessness. He says it amounts to an unfunded government mandate. In order to set up a place like that, you need to have facilities such as toilets and places to shower and places to receive supportive services, and it provides no funding for any of that. Under the bill, people camping outside of official zones could be fined up to $500 and spend 30 days in jail in most circumstances. Rachel Fox Armstrong is the Development and Communications Manager for Legal Action Wisconsin, a nonprofit law firm that provides legal services to low-income Wisconsin residents. She says the proposed criminal penalty would likely only exacerbate the issue of homelessness in the state. In addition to being homeless would mean they now have a criminal record, which would make it then harder for them to find housing and employment. And Nicole Fay is the executive co-director at Madison Street Medicine. The nonprofit organization provides outreach services to unhoused Madisonians and helps staff the city-sanctioned campground on Dairy Drive. Houseless individuals tend to resist help, and some don't really reach out or get to services that they need. She says this could be a serious issue if the proposal passes, as it also seeks to codify a pay-for-performance requirement. Organizations receiving grant funding to assist unhoused people would have to demonstrate that they've met certain objectives before obtaining the entirety of their funding for that year. Those objectives include increasing the number of individuals and families that have secured permanent housing, increasing the number of individuals that have secured employment, and reducing the number of people that return to homelessness after participating in the organization's programs. Jim O'Keefe is the City of Madison's Community Development Director. He says that local organizations and municipalities that are working to address homelessness are already underfunded. There's been a bit of a relief in that regard because of the availability of federal funding owing to Congress's response to the pandemic, but those funds are nearly depleted. And I find it particularly, I guess, ironic that people representing state government, which contributes so little to local efforts to combat homelessness would be calling into question that funding. The proposal is part of a nationwide trend that started in Texas when a think tank called the Cicero Institute penned model legislation dubbed the Reducing Street Homelessness Act. The state of Texas signed a similar bill into law in 2021. The Cicero Institute has lobbied for proposals in Oklahoma, Arizona, Georgia, and Missouri all following the example set in Texas. Michael Basford says that the Cicero Institute is anti-housing first. Prior to this philosophy, uh, a lot of the agencies that provided housing for people experiencing homelessness had to deem somebody housing ready before they provided them housing. You know, if they were having severe mental illness issues, they had to be on a treatment plan. If, if they had substance use disorders, they needed to be sober and other barriers that made it more difficult to get into housing. What the Housing First philosophy is, is that the first thing that you should do when you're, when you're helping somebody who is experiencing homelessness is to provide them housing. As of this broadcast, Wisconsin's proposal is exclusively a Republican effort. 
Co-sponsors argue that it would increase accountability and more effectively address the state's growing unhoused population. O'Keefe, from the city, is encouraging the authors of the bill to come and observe the work that is already being done to support unhoused people. That way, he says, they'd better understand areas of need. I think it would be a good use of their time, and we'd certainly welcome any interest on the part of these or any other legislators to learn more about what it is we're trying to do. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. With the 2024 election now less than a year away, Wisconsin is seeing public debate about controversial proposals for overhauling elements of the election process. Some in the civic engagement community contend the current structure is serving the voters well. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Election oversight remains a controversial topic in Wisconsin. Ahead of the 2024 presidential vote, civic engagement leaders hope state lawmakers resist policy changes they feel would compromise the will of the voters. A Republican-led proposal would do away with the Wisconsin Elections Commission and push oversight to the Secretary of State. But legislative committees, also led by Republicans, would have to sign off on most decisions from that office. Bill sponsors say the Elections Commission is failing to perform its duties. But Deborah Kronmiller with the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin sees efforts like this as an attempt to undermine the voting process. I think that this is functioning government that, you know, certain legislators are just wanting to take that power and make it not function. The commission has faced criticism from conservatives and conspiracy theorists over the 2020 presidential election results. That's despite recounts, audits, and legal opinions that upheld President Joe Biden's victory in Wisconsin. Kronmiller notes the commission operates as a nonpartisan panel, and even some state Republicans have said they don't back the bill to abolish it. Democratic Governor Tony Evers also has vowed to veto the measure. Despite the obstacles in front of that specific plan, Kronmiller feels there's still too much of an appetite to make what she thinks are unnecessary changes. Just in, in recent weeks, other bills that have been introduced, which sort of, I think, show the hand of this legislative body, is that they're not really looking for more integrity in our elections. Governor Evers recently vetoed a handful of election-related bills, and before the session, he rejected other measures he said would make voting harder. However, he did express support for a new plan that would allow election administrators to process absentee ballots the day before an election. Sponsors say that could reduce delays in vote counting. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Born out of the conservative trickle-down economics of the Reagan administration, the federal low-income housing tax credit has become the single largest creator of affordable housing in the United States. Since 1986, the tax credit program has created some 2.5 million rental units and about 90% of the affordable housing built across the nation. The program continues to receive bipartisan support in Congress, but the tax credit has its flaws and shortcomings. For more, 8 o'clock buzz, Brian Standing spoke with Dan Emanuel, a research analyst with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, earlier this morning. And he joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your work with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. What what does that organization do and, and what work do you do for them? 
Sure. So I, I do research for the coalition. We're a, we're a national research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., and our focus is on improving federal rental housing policy to benefit the lowest income renters in the United States. So let's talk about the low income housing tax credit. How did that get started? That got started around 1986 during tax reform uh, in, the, in the mid 80s there as an as a experimental way to try to develop new rental housing. What sorts of programs did it replace and what made this experimental at the time? We hadn't really taken an approach based on the tax code before. Um, so the idea, I think it was, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, I think maybe meant to replace uh, public housing, which I think a lot of, you know, conservatives and probably also neoliberals at the time probably viewed as a failure. I know this is an incredibly complicated program, but if you were going to sort of give us a primer version of how the tax credit works, can you describe the basic idea of how the tax credit is intended to function? Sure. So essentially, uh, every year the IRS allocates uh, a tax credits to every state, and then the, the state develops something called a qualified allocation plan, in which developers then apply for, based on this plan, apply for the credits and competitively, right? And the state awards the the credits to developers, successful applicants. And then the applicants themselves are able to essentially sell off the credits to raise capital for development. That is a very like Cliff Notes version. <laughs> and what kind of housing does the uh, tax credit program support? It supports primarily rental housing. There's a, a small amount that ends up getting used for home ownership, I think. But generally, either a project that receives the credits has to, um, it has to have either 40% of the units set aside for households earning 60% or less of the area median income, or it has to have 20% of the units set aside for households earning 50% or less of the area median income. So what happens, uh, what about housing for people who fall below those income thresholds? How are they taken care of? So those are those are stipulated as the maximum thresholds that are allowed under federal law. There's a lot of flexibility built into the program. It's kind of like a policy devolution, right? Like so every state kind of implements the program differently and lays out the rules for the program within the federal guidelines through this qualified allocation plan. Developers can sometimes be required or incentivized to uh, create units that are affordable to households below those federal minimums, right? Or maximums. So that's one way. And then the other way is you don't just because you don't earn 50 percent of the area median income doesn't mean you can't occupy the unit. In fact, very often uh, households with incomes far below the maximum threshold for the unit are occupying it. Um, But they very often end up being cost burdened. So they're paying actually they're paying more they can afford uh, (laughs) for housing in an affordable housing program, which is one of the big issues in this program. Uh, so for many people, affordable housing isn't all that affordable. I, yeah, that's right. Um, that being said, so you know, it's a good question. So does it serve, just get, getting back to your point, question about whether it's, you know, how does it serve low-income households? It, it, the reality is that actually, uh, you know, the, the, the maximum thresholds under uh, federal law are 50%, 60% percent of AMI, right? Uh, But in practice, we know that over half of the tenants only earn about 30 percent of the area median income, which is pretty close to the poverty line, right? So they're very poor and they typically cannot afford 
these uh, tax credit units without rental assistance. So a lot of them, about 70% of them rely on some other form of rental assistance and other affordable housing programs actually be able to afford the tax credit unit. So talk a little about a bit about the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. What kinds of changes would this make to the tax credit program? Sure. I think uh, the, the most important change that we would like to see is a uh, 50 point, uh, 50% basis boost uh, for projects that have set at least uh, 20% of their units aside for what the lowest income. What is a basis income. boost? Can you explain that to us? So the basis boost is, um, in a nutshell, what we're saying is uh, a, a, a developer that sets aside more of their units for the lowest income households should get more credits. They should get more money to develop their project. Um, the basis boost is it's an increase to something called the eligible basis in a, in a project. And that's those are the eligible development costs. So it's um, a 30% increase to, to that amount, which is used to calculate the total amount of credits the, the, the property actually So basically, you're, you'd be creating an incentive for developers to serve some of those folks we were talking about before who exactly. might earn 30% right. of the median income. Or and to set, to set the units aside at, lowering, at a 30% AMI threshold, right? And because in the tax credit program, the rents... It, it, just to back up a second here, a very th- important thing to understand about the tax credit program is that the rents are set in a very different way to other affordable, traditional affordable housing programs like public housing or housing choice vouchers, right? And those programs, the traditional kind of programs, the, the, the rent is capped at 30% of a tenant's income, okay? So, and, but in the tax credit program, the rent is capped at 30% of the income threshold for the unit, not 30% of the tenant's income. And it's a little bit kind of a hard uh, thing to kind of distinguish between, but essentially what that means is that because the, the tax credit rents are based on the area median income, the area median income can go up every year, right? Without the tenant's income going up. So the rent can actually increase even though the tenant's income doesn't increase. And that's another factor that can lead to cost burdens in, in the program. Um, so that's a, that's a key difference and also a very, very important reason why we need more rental assistance <laughs> programs or funding for rental assistance so that people who are using, uh, people who are trying to lease a unit either in the private market or in a tax credit unit are actually not cost burden, right? So when these when these units are built and we're and as we've mentioned we're pro- talking primarily apartments rental apartments uh, when they're built they're you know they meet an affordable uh, target you know as you may mentioned based on median income um, how do how do they stay do they are they required to stay that way forever or is there a period of time when the developer can turn around and say okay I'm done with this I'm gonna go get market rates for these things. Yeah, that's a great question. So, under federal law, the 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 prop the units have to remain affordable. The the affordability and eligibility requirements are required to stay there for at least thirty years. Um, there's also though something called the qualified contract loophole, in which an owner at around year fifteen of the project can actually. Uh, submit a qualified contract to the housing finance agency, the agency that administers the program in the state. And if the state isn't 
able to find an other buyer for the property who's willing to operate it as affordable housing in the long term, uh, the affordability restrictions and eligibility restrictions are actually wound down over a three-year period. So we've, we lose about 10,000 uh, tax credit units every year just to that qualified contract loophole. And we've estimated that um, we've actually lost around 100,000 units to the qualified contract loophole since the since the 1990s. And we've been speaking with Dan Emanuel, research analyst with the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means it's time to look ahead at what's happening in local government. It's a big task, but not to fear. Contributor Brenda Conkle has the roundup with help from producer Dylan Brogan. It's Monday, and we're talking local government with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. Hello, Brenda. Good evening, Dylan. So a pretty boring week for the county. Just uh, there was, what, three meetings? And <laughs> yeah. two of them got canceled, and we got uh, one meeting on Tuesday, 530. It's the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. They're having a hybrid meeting, at, uh, so they'll be meeting at the city county building, but you can attend virtually. What's going on with that? Uh, looks like a little bit of just sort of technical adjustments. They have an extension of contracts for conveyance services, and they have a contract amendment for the Dancon radio system um, for the maintenance contracts. So just two items on their agenda. It's got very little going on at the county at this week. Yeah, I guess it's already holidays are in full swing. Good for the county, I guess. A little different with the city of Madison. We'll turn to them next. It already happened, but we had a notice of a possible quorum of the Housing Strategy Committee today at the Madison Municipal Building. So what happened with that? So this is their subcommittee on rental housing. And the notice is because there may be a quorum of the Housing Strategy Committee as well. But they're looking at reviewing um, the 2016 biennial housing report um, and looking at the information that was in there about rental housing, as well as then uh, discussing doing a developer survey and also working on their work plan for next year. Also happening tonight is the Plan Commission, and they have a pretty lengthy agenda going through some projects. Um, Give us the highlights. So at the end of the meeting, they'll be talking about some demolition approval standards and also the West and Northeast area plans. Um, They had that special meeting last week, and they did not get to it. So if you are looking forward to that, you might want to pay attention at the end of this meeting. Otherwise, um, they're doing an ordinance amendment to fix some minor errors in the ordinances. And then they have projects at 118 State Street as well as 29 South Mills, which is where the uh, the uh, neighborhood center is over there. And then they have a big project on North Sherman Avenue and Wheeler Road. And that's about it for Plan Commission. The Police and Fire Commission also started meeting at 530 today. They have a lengthy agenda, mostly having to do with promotions and stuff. Um, they, it looks like they're going in closed session as well. Yep, this is the essentially the personnel committee for the fire and police departments. Um, so primarily they just focus on hiring and classes where they teach new people to, to work for the fire and police department. So uh, lots of updates about their academies and classes that are coming up. And then they also are looking at some promotions. The list is on the website if you're interested. 
Let's move now to the Mass and Arts Commission. And one thing they'll be looking at, this is at Tuesday at 5.30, is the review of the Overture contract. So that's pretty important. Millions of dollars being invested, correct? Yes. Um, they review this contract every year. Usually, um, you know, they, they look at what types of programs are being made available to low-income folks in our community, if that is working out or if they need to make any changes to it. Um, they'll also be looking at their annual grants guidelines for next year. And then they are looking at an art project for the State Street Campus Garage and then Artist at Work grant for 2024. So they'll be looking at applications and guidelines for that. Happening 5.30 on Tuesday, we have the Joint Campus Area Committee. So all about what's happening on campus and quite a few projects uh, on the on the docket. Yes. Um, the, the two bigger topics that they'll be talking about are the Camp Randall Replacement Project, Sports Center Replacement Project, and then uh, the UW Master Plan Amendment for the College of Engineering. Uh, those are two sort of bigger items in the beginning of the meeting. And then they get a whole bunch of updates um, from the University of Wisconsin from UW Health, as well as the City of Madison, and usually the Neighborhood Association as well. Yeah, I know I'm probably not being discussed this time, but I know there's been talk of putting in heated turf uh, at Camp Randall. So I guess that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah football is important. I mean, it's an outdoor stadium. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that all works. <laughs> Something about bowl games. Um, anyway, so Wednesday, 4.30, the Board of Public Works is meeting virtually and lots of change orders. Yeah, they have lots of change orders. Um, it's actually a small amount for them, which is about $100,000. But then there are a bunch of approving plans and specs for various projects, as well as various um, street renamings and things like that. They also are going to be looking at declaring the Rutledge Street Assessment District as well as the Starker Avenue Assessment District. And then they are also looking at some contracts for paving and various other projects. Okay. Also at 430 is the Urban Design Commission. So this is a good way to see what new projects are in the pipeline. What are they talking about? So, yeah, they have some projects the ones that are probably of most interest are 660 South Whitney Way. There's some exterior res renovations going on there. At 33 West Johnson, there's a new planned development mixed-use project going in there. Um, there's also at 668 State Street some exterior building modifications. And at 1202 South Park Street, there's a new mixed-use building going up there. At the end, they also will be talking about some changes to their ordinance about their policy and procedure manual. Still on Wednesday now at 5 p.m., we have the Transportation Commission. So we'll be getting a director's report. Anything else of note? Yeah, they'll be looking at the West Area Plan. This seems to be making its way through many of the committees. And then they're going to be giving some feedback on a couple of upcoming projects, one at East Wilson and East Doty, and then the other one at Knutson Drive. And then they'll be getting some updates on uh, Madison Metro Accessibility Plan and Paratransit as well as um, an update about a taxi license denial. Okay. Now at 5.30, we have the City-County Schools Collaborative Committee on Wednesday. Was that used to be the Education Committee? Yes, it is. <laughs> That's the same okay. one. <laughs> so what are they talking about? Um, they're going to be talking about driver's ed. Um, there was a recent state bill that was passed, and they'll be taking a look at that. And then they'll also be looking at pedestrian safety for Madison Metropolitan School District kids. Finally, let's just end on the Board of Park Commissioners. That's at 6.30 on Wednesday. And 
Looks like they have some fun things having to do with foxes and coyotes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they'll be uh, getting an update on the beer garden at Ulbrick Park. Then they'll also be um, getting an approval request from the UW-Wisconsin for the Urban Canid Project to continue for 10th year in, in Madison Parks. I believe that's the um, where they have some cameras, correct? Something like that, yeah. I mean, they're looking out for foxes yeah. and coyotes and stuff, and I guess yep. maybe a wolf yep. every... No, probably not wolves, but... <laughs> We don't want to freak anyone out. It's just coyotes and foxes. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. That's important. The next thing that they'll be doing is then they'll be looking at uh, the Metropolitan School District using their athletics fields and then um, looking at the project by uh, the Triangle. The CDA is doing a lot of redevelopment there. And then, again, that West Area plan out by West Town. Yeah, interesting. A potential geothermal concept in Birmingham Park. So maybe there's a volcano under there or something. <laughs> I'd be surprised. <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, if you want to learn more about that and all the other meetings we talked about, plus uh, check out some agendas, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you so much for talking us through this week in local government. You're welcome, Dylan. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories. Oh, sorry. I skipped. I skipped over something. Today is the anniversary of the founding of UNICEF, now the United Nations Children's Fund. Since 1946, UNICEF has given direct aid to hundreds of millions of children and advocated for their health and safety. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has this week's edition of The Past Isn't Past. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Today, December 11th, is the anniversary of the founding of UNICEF, originally called the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund in 1946 by the UN General Assembly. The fund is now officially called the United Nations Children's Fund, but the acronym remains. UNICEF's original goal was to provide food, medicine, and clothing to children and mothers displaced by World War II. Its mandate was expanded in 1950 to address children's and women's long-term needs in poor countries. In 1953, the organization became a permanent part of the United Nations system. In 1965, UNICEF received the Nobel Peace Prize for its efforts to enhance solidarity between nations and reduce the differences between rich and poor states. UNICEF, during the 70s, became a vocal advocate of children's rights. During the 80s, UNICEF assisted the UN Commission on Human Rights in drafting the Convention on the Rights of the Child. After its introduction to the UN, General Assembly in 1989, the convention became history's most widely ratified human rights treaty, and UNICEF plays a key role in its enforcement. The U.S. is the only nation refusing to sign the treaty because of concerns about its potential impact on national sovereignty and the parent-child relationship. UNICEF relies entirely on voluntary contributions from governments and private donors. Its 2020 budget was just over $7 billion. Governments contributed nearly $5.5 billion. Its programs emphasize community-level services for the health and well-being of children. Most of its work is on projects that provide direct aid, with a network that includes 150 country offices and other facilities that carry out programs developed with host nations. In 2018, UNICEF assisted in 27 million births, administered pentavalent vaccines to an estimated 65 
five and a half million children. Pentavalent is the name of a five and one vaccine that protects against diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, hepatitis B, and hemophilus influenza type B. They provided education for 12 million children, treated 4 million children with severe acute malnutrition, and answered 285 humanitarian emergencies in 90 countries. UNICEF says it helped 274 million children in 2022. Anticipating the COP28 climate talks, UNICEF issued a special report on climate change focused on worsening water problems. Water scarcity is one of the gravest risks for the world's children. A key concern is that access to safe water, sanitation, and hygiene is not improving fast enough as climate impacts and associated threats to children escalate. Nearly one in three 739 million globally face high or extremely high water scarcity, while 436 million children live in areas of high or extremely high water vulnerability. Close to 1 billion children are exposed to high or extremely high water stress, where demand outstrips the supply. The report concludes with a plea to world leaders to center children in climate response. The consequences of climate change are devastating for children, said UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell. Not only is the world changing, with water resources drying up and terrifying weather events becoming stronger and more frequent, so too is their well-being, as climate change affects their mental and physical health. Children are demanding change, but their needs are too often relegated to the sidelines. UNICEF has also spoken out strongly on the current Israeli invasion of Gaza. Calling attention to the dire conditions for children, UNICEF is calling for 1. An immediate ceasefire. 2. The immediate release of all abducted children and the prevention and end to any grave violations against children, including killing and injuring. 3. All access crossings into the Gaza Strip to be opened and safe movement for humanitarian workers and supplies across the Gaza Strip to ensure sustained and unimpeded access of humanitarian aid to affected populations wherever they are. This must include water, food, medical supplies, and fuel. 4. Urgent medical cases in Gaza to be able to safely access critical health services or be allowed to leave and for injured or sick children evacuated to be accompanied by family members. And finally, 5. Respect for civilian infrastructure such as shelters and schools, health, electrical, water, and sanitation facilities to prevent loss of civilian and children's lives, outbreaks of diseases, and to provide care for the sick and wounded. All parties to the conflict must respect international humanitarian law. UNICEF continues to press world leaders on every occasion for humanitarian access to the whole of Gaza. And that is our story for today. For the past in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Last Saturday, more than 230 low brass instruments filled the Capitol Rotunda for Tuba Christmas. The event featured tubas and euphoniums and musicians from all ages, from 10 to 82. Some of the instruments dated back to the mid-1800s. It was led by conductors Mike LaCrone, as well as WORT's own Dr. Don Deal. It, and it's one of many tuba Christmases that happened across the United States and across Wisconsin. Feature contributor Laura Schrader brought us the sights and sounds from the Capitol Rotunda.
Tonight, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new war films. Theaters of War is a documentary investigating the Pentagon's influence on major Hollywood movies like Top Gun, Captain Marvel, and even Godzilla. And Harry says Napoleon is entertaining, but not particularly historical. What they don't know is how systematic this has been and how huge this operation has been. You can call it censorship. You can call it propaganda. It's, it's all of these things. And that was lit from the trailer for a new documentary, Theaters of War, directed by Dr. Roger Stahl. Stahl is the author of the book Militainment, Inc., about militarism and popular culture. But Theaters of War is based on work by British researchers Tom Secker and Matthew Alford. Secker and Alford have obtained a huge amount of data based on freedom of information requests on the military and CIA influence on movies and TV. The process is movie producers and directors want to get the best military equipment for their war and action movies. Think Top Gun, Captain Marvel, Godzilla. The U.S. military wants to exploit Hollywood as a vehicle of propaganda. They regard certain movies as infomercials for the Pentagon. Captain Marvel 2019 was a quite open attempt to recruit women into the Air Force. According to Secker and Alford, the results are scripts approved by the Pentagon to remove any potentially critical content that may affect military recruitment. Exhibit A might be the long-delayed Top Gun sequel. The original came out in 1986. The delay was caused by a report of women's sexual abuse at the Defense Department, who decried what it called the Top Gun mentality of male recruits. The updated version includes a woman and a person of color and tones down the sexism of the earlier version. The documentary also reveals the cozy relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon that was concealed by the major academic books on the subject by Lawrence Seward, who said the Pentagon just wanted to make movies more realistic. Alfred flew to the U.S. to review Seward's collection at Georgetown University, but was refused, apparently at Seward's request. When Seward died, his estate made the records public. The director was astonished to find archival evidence that Seward had not only been given his own intranet account by the Pentagon, but that he had on-demand access to Pentagon documents and had received advice on how to write one of his books, Guts and Glory. The Pentagon and the CIA, according to numerous experts, stall interviews, expanded their criteria for cooperation in the 80s and also broadened out their reach to television. There's a fun segment where Stahl interviews military veteran director Oliver Stone, who explains why his films didn't get Pentagon cooperation. His movies contain scenes like the depiction of murder and rape of innocent Vietnamese villagers in Platoon, 1986, to which Stone frankly replies, I saw both. Deservingly, the documentary notes dozens of movies were turned down by the Pentagon. An untold number of movies were never made. The CIA proved tougher to get information from. A similar process of Pentagon propaganda is also at work on TV. All in all, a good documentary, well worth watching. I saw it as part of the ongoing movie series being shown by our local Veterans for Peace and the local World Beyond War group. There was a good panel discussion after the movie with Vets for Peace, Brad Geyer, and Progressive Magazine's publisher, Norm Sockwell. Check out Veterans for Peace's website for upcoming movies. Up next, a war movie that bypassed the Pentagon's approval process. But I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. 
That was a clip from the trailer for Napoleon, directed by Ridley Scott. This is a pretty good action movie, with some vivid battle scenes interrupted by several not-as-interesting domestic ones. Movies are not history, but how accurate is it? British historian Andrew Robert put it succinctly when asked, How much of the two-hour, 38-minute movie Napoleon is accurate? Replied, Only 38 minutes. Interestingly, Scott's reply to criticism from historians is, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? Well, no. Shut the F up, then. However, some scenes are more accurate than others. An early battle to break the British blockade at Toulon is close to what really happened, except that Napoleon was in his 20s then, not his 40s, as Joaquin Phoenix clearly is. No problem of having one actor covering the whole career of Napoleon. On the other hand, there's a great battle scene that made the trailer where a retreating army is hit with cannonballs as they unknowingly flee over a frozen body of water never happened. Also, Napoleon was much brighter and a political reformer than Napoleonic Claude, for instance, but that doesn't come up. Phoenix's flawed portrayal of Napoleon may not be his fault, but Scott's. Vanessa Kirby does a better job as Napoleon's first wife, Josephine, but there are a slew of inaccuracies in that relationship as well. Perhaps the four-hour cut coming to Apple Plus will provide a better, more accurate portrayal, but I doubt it. As an entertaining movie, it's pretty good. As history, not so much. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Laura Schrader, Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, Nicholas Leet for technical production, and 8 o'clock buzz host Brian Standing. Thanks also to the Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen, Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.